Degree Absolutions Clemic here, coming to you two days ahead of schedule. We are releasing this long, languid episode devoted to Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, in time for you to enjoy it over the course of your long, languid Memorial Day weekend programming note. We've heard from some listeners who dislike when Glenn and I take too long to get to the meat, the potatoes of each episode, so uh, rather than put the mailbag at the top, we will have a lengthy selection of listener mail in the second half of this episode after you hear us talk about Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. That's all the news. Episode proper commences now. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. You're a keen Rosarian. <laughs> it was when you were pruning your baccarat. Those oh, ones oh. down. Oh, I dropped my cicadas. I dropped my cicadas. Done by your little goldfish pool. <laughs> <laughs> when I asked you if you would do a podcast with me. I remember you dropped the cicadas. I never understood yep. why, because it couldn't have been all that much of a surprise to you. The next day, you took me to lunch at your club. Our favorite dish, jugged hair. <laughs> jugged hair. <laughs> on the menu. Did you look it up? No, but I'm picturing a jar with a fish stuck in it and an entire it's fish. Actually, it's usually made or historically made with a clay jug. It's basically just rabbit stew, but it's often made with the hare's blood. Just to give wow. it extra. Extra okay. gamey, extra gaminess. I know that a hare is a rabbit, so why? I, I guess I was picturing pickled herring, because I in my mind's eye, I, nope, I it's saw. Very savory. It is very, you know, after after the fox hunt, we shall we shall <laughs> sup on jugged hare. <laughs> it is a very, hairs. it's a very uh, Tony, very posh um, uh, dish. That sounds gross. One favored by number six. Yeah. As. Charlie Curtis is to flapjacks. <laughs> Number six is apparently to jugged hair. One of the yeah. many striking revelations about this nameless man in this week's episode, which is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. Confusingly, yeah. I know you, you said you, you conflate this episode with Living in Harmony, the, the Western one that we haven't gotten to yet. And the title was initially supposed to be used for, for Living in Harmony, this one, meanwhile, was scripted under the much more memorable and descriptive Face Unknown. Yep, yep. Ah, uh, boy, if we were confused by the Living in Harmony, Do Not Forsake Me thing, imagine how the production team must have just, left, especially when you switch <laughs> the title midway through. 
Yeah. Do not forsake me. That's a lot of words to squeeze into the frame and modified Albertus over that that shot of uh, (laughs) the village. Like, I just couldn't help thinking, like, Face Unknown would would just look better. It would sit more comfortably in that space. Yeah, keep it pithy. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's what I always say. But, you know, that, it did look kind of like the Magna Carta scrolling past. <laughs> it's just a lot of words. <laughs> One thing that I, I just, just kept thinking of watching this episode was uh, about how this is the series that famously never cut corners, was never going to cut a corner, mm. but uh, there would be no Euclidean geometry permitted on set within the earshot yet- of, of Mr. Magoon, this uh, fat-headed tyrant... <laughs> And yet, this entire episode is just the the upper left-hand corner of a script of Battlestar Galactica. Like, right. this is all the papers in Battlestar Galactica and books. Uh, it's nothing but cut corners. And you know what oof. I love about it, though, is the, the guy who they got to write this is Vincent Tilsley, the guy who had written The Chimes of Big Ben and was very frustrated when McGowan refused to perform the... Not even real love scene, but the sort of faked love scene that he had written for, for Six and Nadia so that they could whisper to one another, you know, un, unheard by their observers. And he was pissed by, by McGowan's, you know, weird compromise about, like, okay, well, I'll stroke her, <laughs> her razor-sharp hair, you know, <laughs> but I'm not actually going to kiss this woman. And he talks about this on that documentary, Don't Knock Yourself Out, about how they're like, well, so you can't have McGowan and you can't have Port Mirian. <laughs> He was like, that's the show. (laughs) That is the whole show. So he came up with this brain-swapping premise that he said he hated, didn't feel good about it. He said, writing a story you don't believe in is akin to being trapped in a loveless marriage, Glenn. Wow. Well, if it's any consolation, it shows. (laughs) Boy. This, I mean, this is going to be a very short episode, I feel, because I got no whack-ass inflections for Patrick Magoon to uh, tiresomely imitate, and uh, there's nothing in the village, really. It's just, it's basically... If you like lava lamps and episodes that are ad hoc and ordinary inflections from Nigel Stock. That would be a B-minus episode of Secret Agent. I mean, the thing about this show is it's always weird. Even episodes... Uh, like the general, which I don't care for, are not basic like this is. This is a basic Knowledgeable episode. Cabbages. Knowledgeable cabbages. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's no fault of this um, actor who tries, who strives. Uh, yes. But, uh, oof, oofta. And supposedly, at, at least according to uh, our guru, our friend uh, Mr. Cox, a, a lot of the material that Magoon rejected that he saw in this episode upon returning from L.A. where he had been shooting Ice Station Zebra, which I'm very mm-hmm. pleased to be able to say once again, you and I will soon be dissecting with podcasting legend Matt Gorley, your mm-hmm. friend and mine, the great Matt Gorley. But yeah, he was uh, unimpressed by what had been made in his absence by a couple of veterans. I mean, this is director Pat Jackson, who had done mm-hmm. several prior episodes and who McGowan knew from Danger Man. And uh, again, Tilsley, who had written uh, Chimes of Big Ben. Cox says that that among the material that McGowan demanded be taken out was the stuff where stock is playing him doing yeah. McGowan the way that John Travolta and Nick Cage do each other in face off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would have been fun. Would have been fun to see. <laughs> I think so. The guy's got chops. I mean, like this guy, uh, <laughs> Nigel stock was, um, you know, he had been around like, this is a guy who played Watson to, uh, Sherlock Holmes, yeah. uh, on radio 60s. and, and TV. He also appeared in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. He appeared in The Great Escape. And, of course, sing along with me. 
the lion in winter because that's there that's <laughs> there's just the six british actors and you know this guy this guy you know we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't even welcomed the listeners in yet oh um am i gonna do, do that need, or are you gonna do that no i mean like uh first of all you need to say the thing about to give the origin story because yeah. i love it yeah what are we even talking about here what's what is exactly. the what is the subject of this podcast well Turns out, Glenn, that in 1966, Nigel Stock, star of the, <laughs> who had nothing to do with the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village, where some residents are referred to only by their numbers. Uh-huh. Some have designations. Some have genders. It's uh, very inconsistent. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously in lava lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner Glen. Yeah, it was. We're, we're making plans for Nigel Stock. Oh, my God. That's a good one. Wow. That's Thank you. great. Go, Nigel Stock. Go. Give me some money. Is that the one? There's there's a Spinal Tap song that has "Go Nigel Go" in the in the middle. <laughs> I, I you know what I want. Stop wasting my time. Sure. This is the prisoner as you know him. This is the prisoner as he appears in. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. No one will believe that within this body lives the mind and personality of another man. The man you know as the prisoner. We have met before, but you can possibly remember me because the first time we met, I looked like this. The prisoner is the same, only his body is different in the next dramatic adventure of The Prisoner on this channel. We welcome you all now to the private personal by hand punch card driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we push it. Like it's a massive boulder enchanted by Hades to roll back down the hill every time we near the top. I should mention that in this example, we are the duplicitous and iron-fisted founder and king of Corinth. Wow. All right. I like a Sisyphean pull. Uh, that's, uh, that's six out of six, buddy. Well done. Well done. Cover me. I'm going in. <laughs> we file it like it's a fairy, fairy, ficious phenom from a villainous viper we're attempting to preserve in a glass tube. File, file, file. All right. I, Give it to I, me straight. You, I can you, take you it. Know, you've, you've established that. Um, all right. When I when I had had one that you just didn't know, you you gave me a six out of uh, uh-huh. weary obligation, shame. I don't know. So so I gotta I gotta give you a six. You have a cumulative score of twelve so far. All right. We index it like it's the hangman, the hermit, the hierophant, the moon, the sun, the tower, and judgment. It's index, index. It's, uh, um, all right. I guess, I guess you're, you, you, you got an 18 here, buddy, because, um, you, you told me that I, that, that, that I rank confusion counts as a six. I'll I'll keep that in mind. We stamp it like the floor directly beneath Veruca Salt's patent leather Mary Janes. You must've done a Veruca Salt pull by this point. No, haven't, haven't. All right. Um, good, good. Uh, it's of the era. It is uh, equally unsettling and, and bizarre. And uh, okay, twenty-four, two dozen, Glenn, two dozen is your score. Okay. This is this is I'm, I'm about to to dunk it. We brief it like we're Michael Caine's Tenet screen time. Also works for Martin Donovan. Yeah, but he's the guy who 
has a word and a for you yes. and a gesture. Yes. So, um, all right. I, see, this was just candy for you. This is like I was, I was giving I know, you a personal I know, you're thing. trying this to be nice just, to me. So, okay, I so am I'm going to... Pandering. Pandering yep, yep, is yep, the word yep, you're looking okay. for. So we're, I'm going to give you a gentleman's four. Okay. We debrief it or we deboxer it. Depends on which dude we go home with that night. Wow. See, oh, that's the, whole, that's the whole that's thing. The whole, okay. That's the whole thing. All right. Yep. All right. I'm sure Magoon would not approve. So uh, <laughs> that's true. five, five out of six. We number it like it's the stars in Lois Lowry's Newbery winning YA novel in which a 10-year-old Danish girl's bravery is tested when her best friend is threatened by Nazis in 1943. Uh, I'm going to give that a six, which oh, gives okay. you 34. Okay. Is that right? What is it? Is, is, is 36 no a perfect score? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All right. Nicely done, Glenn. Keen Rosarian that you are. <laughs> oh, my cicadas. Oh, my poor cicadas. That, that one line is like, we're, it's like, it pays to enrich your word power. Yeah. Rosarian, cicadas, and baccarat. Just from context, I'm going to infer that cicada is uh, that's some kind of gardening tool that's like shears or yep. scissors. Shears, or, exactly. Okay. All right. Pick up. Good, good, good. Well, this episode... Are we sure this was even written for I mean, this series? This is the thing. It's like, as I say, it's like a B-minus episode of Secret Agent or any other thing. Yeah. This is a perfectly pleasant 50-odd minutes of period television. It's got some bells and whistles. It's got some suspense, if you squint. And uh, But it is, as I say, it's basic. It doesn't have Magoo and it doesn't have The Village. It would be like making... And no one would ever do this. This is. I'm just throwing this out there as like a... As like a object lesson, this because this would never happen. It would be like if you made a Batman television show with no Batman. No one would ever do it. It would be monumentally stupid, and no one would do it even once, let alone four <laughs> times, five if you count Titans. But I think he shows up on that show. I'm not sure where Markstein is on this. Is this one of the uh, last? Oh, he's Markstein's? gone. No, he's no, gone. This, by now. this is one of the final four in production. Okay. So Markstein is out. And what's confusing about that is that once upon a time, even though it is the second to last episode, was made much earlier in this That's right. Run. Mark Steen was president okay. for that. Right. So this isn't really an indication of how far off the rails this show's about to go, because again, this is so, you know, this is so basic. But we've got Living in Harmony, The Girl Who Was Death, Once Upon a Time, which was made earlier, and then Fallout. I mean, as I say, I think this is going to be a pretty brief episode because there's just not much to talk about. I ache for imagining Magoo delivering lines like, you'll drop to cicadas. <laughs> King Rosarian? You know, it would be so much fun. Not have been surprised. No, that was terrible. Yes, it was. All right, so the cold open. Uh, there's a bunch of old white men in a fusty office sitting around looking at vacation photos, uh, which they are convinced is a coded mm. message uh, based on how many are overexposed or underexposed, in yes. focus, uh, we, focus. We got a reader letter a few weeks ago now, Glenn, indicating that um, some of our episodes are perfectly sonically balanced. But several are under-EQ'd and just as many over-EQ'd. That was not worth the time that it took. So that's a code. You're saying that's an elaborate code <laughs> that our listeners can... That's right. Work. I'm saying once this has, has... Oh, God, I don't even want to say it. But like once we're, once we're all done, I don't want us to be done. But um, however many episodes we end up doing, if you play them all simultaneously... <laughs> one on top of the other. Yes. Then you'll get a grid reference to some place in Austria where uh, mm -hmm. a brain swap scientist is pretending to be a barber. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just spoiled our whole podcast for you. Oh, this episode. Anyway, so they're looking at vacation shots of like the Eiffel Tower, Loch Ness, Dartmouth, and Beachy, Beachy Head. Head. <laughs> I am not going to make the Rehoboth joke, although what? I certainly could. I rode my bike up there in 75 minutes last week from uh -huh. OC to Rehoboth. The wind was in my favor. 
and, and I so got there the quickly. Yeah. Yes, okay. They are looking for a brilliant scientist by the name of Seltzman, and then, after that, where is Seltzman? We get the standard opening. But, you know, when he goes to the window, there's no music sting, there's no Q&A, there's just this shot of a helicopter arriving in the village. Mm-hmm. Who, is, who is this helicopter bringing? We will soon find out, but for now, we see a shot of number six, who is, wait for it, being observed as he paces and eats toast by <laughs> number two, whose face we don't see. It's an interesting shot. Right. There are some interesting shots in this episode, actually. Yeah. And number two, and he's saying something like, oh, it won't be long now. Wait for mm-hmm. it. Uh, and it's interesting. All we see are his uh, shoes, and the subject appears to be sockless. Repeat, sockless. Uh, mm-hmm. So the colonel arrives, and this is... Well, you is... know, Glenn, you know what the secret to surviving air travel is. Oh, um, God. I, I set Pray continue. Up that. You, you yeah, sure okay. did. You sure did. It's another line in winter reference. I'm sorry, everyone. It's... I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't stop myself. Can't... Just keep going back to that well. Uh, so this is Nigel Stock, who we've talked about before. Kind of a Brian Dennehy-looking dude, i got to say. He's got some stuff. He's a bit, uh, like, he, grew, he he's a bit burly. He's got some burl on him, uh, uh-huh. more than more than McGowan does anyway. Um, and, you know, uh, I grew up a, a burly youth, and I would have hated being named Nigel Stock, because that is just giving kids an extra, I mean, I'm sure if he if he had any kind of issues uh, growing up, I mean, I'm sure the, the kids around him. The fact that their, their fill-in actor is a, a guy whose name is Stock, that will, I, that's no disrespect yeah. to, to Nigel Stock, an actor of great accomplishment, but uh, that is funny. Come on. That's yeah. like hiring a guy named Scab. Mm-hmm. Or in my example, uh, like I imagine the composer Neil Hefty couldn't have had a good time because that's just, <laughs> it's just lying there. Hefty with uh, an I. So the co- the colonel, the colonel does not know why he was sent to the village, but mm-hmm. he was sent there on the highest authority. Not, number two uh, is... not one of our prior colonels, not <coughs> Colonel no. Jay, and not the colonel who had his afternoon's golf game interrupted by Six's return in uh, Many Happy Returns. We are going to meet still yet another set of number six's superiors here. It's like, oh, this, really? I don't know. Oh, really? <laughs> this department is just, everybody's so siloed. You have just so many different managers. I, it's, it I can't don't know, be. man. I, I think it's just too many colonels. Like, we, we, mm-hmm. need, some, we need some lieutenants. It's true. Because everybody's at the same level. You're right. I mean, there's one general, but that turned out to be a computer. Um, what? Number two. Number two is delighted to see him. This number two is Clifford Evans. He's got a huge resume, uh, but the only thing that stood out to me was Curse of the Werewolf and Kiss of the Vampire. (laughs) (laughs) How many times a day does this man change clothes? Because he is wearing a dressing gown. Like, he's always got attendants around him, presumably junior, junior G-men, you know, bringing him documents and advising him on what's going on. But um, the first time we see him, he's got a, a nice suit with a like long long tails on his coat and a carnation and uh mm-hmm. and he's maybe it's a rose i don't know he's a rosarian <clears throat> but um fresh flower on the lapel but um you know i guess he's working around the clock because we we do see him at several points in the dressing gown and it's like wait does he live in this office do these guys live with him is that what it's like to be the head of mi6 I'm oh. I am talking about number two here. I'm not talking about the colonel yet. Oh, sorry. I'm, uh, I'm not talking about, about the. Sorry. The, colonel, the colonel is the name of the Brian Dennehy. Is Nigel Stock's right, character is right. the colonel. Sorry. Yes, I skipped right yeah. ahead to number six's former superior. Yes. Yes. All right. Yes. Back it up. Back it up. Okay. So we're backing it up. So the colonel arrives, and the first thing number two does is give him is, is a power move. He says, "So, make a snap judgment about this person you see on the screen, angrily eating toast," and. <laughs> 
The Colonel, who is written not to be a particularly smart guy, but I think the actor rises above yeah. that. Uh, he, he, his estimation of number six from looking at him for three seconds. Anybody who spends his time doing that must be rather stupid. Because of the toast? I mean, because why he's would you, pacing why is... and eating? I mean, yeah. I spend I mean, so much time walking around my place eating. Maybe I shouldn't mm-hmm. admit that so readily. And then we get a really nice shot of number two's office from an angle we haven't seen before. I mean, this this set doesn't have rafters, but if it did, right. it's looking down on them from a really interesting angle. It's like, oh, well, th- I wouldn't expect this filler episode to have anything like this. Okay. We do return to it a couple times. Yes, but this is the first of many shots in this episode where... The use of doubles is so distracting and obvious, and I'm not talking about stock for McGowan. I'm talking no. about the the gray head, who I presume to be number two, is talking to someone with dark hair and a mustache, Glenn. That does not yep. describe Nigel Stock any more than it describes Patrick McGowan. The guy yep. looked kind of like Hitler. <laughs> yep. What's going on? Yep, yep, that's certainly true. There's no sandy-haired adult male on the set that we could just walk over here for, for a few seconds. You, best boy. You, you. Um, we learned that Seltzman, this mysterious doctor, was working on thought transference, and yeah. the, the colonel says, yes, I, I, I know about that in India. Um, <laughs> a technique demonstrated by advanced your guys, <laughs> yes. by people who have gone on Mark Maron's podcast and uh, yes. identified their guys, nice. and then uh, nice, you know, nice, identified nice, your nice, guys nice. can live in suspended animation for months. Uh, this time. number two does say yo guy, which is funny. So advanced yokais can enter a state of suspended animation. Seltzman is missing, and the last person to see him was number six. So here comes the workaround. This has nothing to do with number six trying to escape. This has nothing to do with six trying to preserve his identity. It's all about, hey, you know who knows something? That guy, that guy number six. Let's, let's, uh, let's use him. Yeah. Two takes the colonel to the, what he calls the amnesia room, but it says on the door that it's the uh, uh, examination room. So, again, this is just one example of willy-nilly. And he says that uh, they can wipe out any memory, which we, you and I, Chris, cannot think about too hard because that kind of undercuts the entire reason for the village's existence, if you can do something like that so easily, right? right? Yeah, 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 part of your exit interview. Okay, you you broke the china, but please step into this room over here, and then mm-hmm. you're free to go. Yeah. Yep, and then we'll just men in black you. A bunch of green jumpsuits enter number six's residence and kidnap his stump double. Yes. Uh, <laughs> These guys have the uniforms from the, the general. Yeah. These aren't any stripy shirt uh, toughs. These are the, the boxing booted uh, white boots, white helmets, white gloves. Yeah, these are military police. Yeah. yeah, these are military truncheons. The truncheons. Uh, we get a bunch of shots of kind of... Number six's greatest hits in the village of him just walking around. And then... (laughs) With special attention paid to the exciting Miami Vice speedboat chase from Free For All. Yep. I think it's Free For All. Sleep well, my friend, and forget us. Tomorrow you will wake up a new man. (sighs) And then he wakes up. Get a POV shot of someone waking up in a London apartment. That's his bedroom? That doesn't make any sense because he wakes up in that room that Mrs. Butterworth uh, hit on him in. <laughs> Last we get that inner monologue that we've been craving. Oh, bad day. Let's see. It's, uh, oh, yes, Janet's birthday present. <laughs> Hope she likes it. Could always change it if she doesn't. What's on for today? Let's see. 
car service, death disappointment. Uh, no, 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 no. We we'll had to cancel that because of time. What's on today? Not too bad a day. Oh, have to cancel the dentist. Da da da. Hope she likes her birthday present. Yeah, this is the kind of narration <laughs> that you don't hear too much anymore because it's not how thought works, but okay, sure. Fine. Yeah. I'll give it to him. There is some Philip Marlowe adaptation where like the whole thing is POV, like when yeah. the character walks through a door and it, yeah, I've never seen it, but. I think um, it's DOA, isn't it? DOA? The movie? Uh, uh, the Edmund O'Brien DOA might be that way. I've only seen yeah. the remake with Dennis Quaid that I remember liking okay. a lot, but yeah. um, anyway, sounds sounds like a terrible, terrible technique. Uh-huh. That puttering is very, very funny. He sees himself in the mirror, gets his Dennehy on. We should notice that as he's putting around here, there is a giant picture of Janet, which was not here before. <laughs> and won't be here again. But fine. Janet. Janet yeah. and her helmet hair. If the whole thing was the village was uh, finding it suited their purpose to try to convince him that he... Mm-hmm had a, a fiancé named Janet and were, you know, giving him artificial memories of a whole relationship. And so, like, uh, that, that could have been a thing. That could have been cool. Mm-hmm. We get brief kind of trippy flashback. Seltzman, he remembers Seltzman. We want information. He opens the door to a Janet and her helmet hair. Is Carl, is he back? Is he with you? Yes. Darling? And while... You can't say, I mean, it doesn't track for him to have a girlfriend based on what we've learned from him up to now, but if he did, she's pretty much his type, right? She's a bit stern, a bit forbidding, Uh a a tiny bit cold. She has the vibe of an older woman, a Butterworth. I mean, a Butterworth's a lot more. Yeah, I did, right. No, she does, um, she does kind of present as being older than, than she is. Where is he? Yeah. Janet. However fantastic what I'm going to tell you may sound, you must believe me. Who are you? How do you know my name? What are you doing here anyway? How did you get hold of his car? In fact, one of these books, uh, actually, I, I... Why did you tell me he was here? I think it's the, uh... Alan Stevens and Fiona Shaw Fallout, the unofficial companion to the prisoner, is almost cruel. <laughs> the way that it says she looks much older than her... 30 whatever years. But he saw you. He told me he saw you last night. Last night? I didn't see him last night. But he had dinner with you after your fitting. What fitting? Your dress. For the party, your birthday party. He even told me the color, yellow silk. Yellow silk? The only yellow... That was a year ago. Turns out, we learn that he's been gone for a year, and Janet's father is Sir Charles, who was one of the dudes in that room at the top of the show, mm-hmm. who is at least the fifth or sixth superior we've met of, of Six. Yeah. Um, and she demands that Six Dennehy Stock tell her <laughs> where he is. He purports not to know. We, we never get... Um, we never get his name, of course. That would be no, the I way that humans talk to each other. <laughs> but and that's not what's going to happen on this yeah. particular episode, because they need to preserve the mystery. This is a. I mean, <clears throat> this my my head hurts watching this one, and not not in the the sort of pleasant buzzy way that it so often does with this show. Like I understand the utility of taking um, 
the colonel and putting his consciousness into Six's body because Seltzman knows and trusts Six. So they want to find out something from or about Seltzman, I guess. Um, I don't understand what the hell they're doing by letting letting uh, Six go wander around in London in the colonel's body. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they not just keep him in the village? Yeah, there is that. Um, I think they, they're trying to pump him for information, and they just want to see what he would do. What he does is he gets in K-A-R-120-C, and then redoes the opening credits. And I mean really redoes the opening credits, because that is not stuff. Okay, but this... Uh, now, okay, now according to... Um, According to the official companion, the the Robert Faircloth uh, 2002 Prisoner Companion, they did, they went to the trouble of getting another Lotus Seven. They had already sold it off the the one that they used to shoot the opening title sequence. By this point, because as we discussed earlier, this was the second production block of episodes that they had to go and get another one of these cars. They did shoot scenes of Nigel Stock driving it around. So why are there so <laughs> many shots of Patrick McGowan driving after we see Stock get into the car and drive away? Yep. Many of the overhead shots, it's McGowan. It's not Nigel yeah. Stock. So what's going on? Yep. It's just but... confusing. Like I kept thinking, I was like, wait, are we supposed to be reminded every so often that that he doesn't look the way to everyone the way he looks to us? Like in like in Wonder Woman 1984, where the dude who sure. looks like Chris Pine to us, but looks like this other guy in the world. Nope, it's none of that, because he is, he's supposed to look like the colonel. He's not supposed to look like Patrick McGowan, because Janet doesn't doesn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. So what, what the hell? So uh, he strides into that long hallway, opens those famous doors, and proceeds to berate a poor schlub of a man named Danvers because George Markstein has moved on. I think uh-huh. he probably broke too many tea sets and they were like, nope, we can't, we're not made of money here. We can we can replace the incredibly rare Lotus 7, apparently, but tableware, once it's gone, it's gone. So with Danvers, the office is much uh, better lit than it was under, under Markstein's yep. tenure. Um. It's almost as if Danvers was a woman, the way that Six treats him, because he threatens him with exposure. Jonathan Peregrine Danvers, born in Bootle, took elocution lessons, came to London, joined the civil service in 1948 as a junior clerk, was moved to this department some three years later, mainly at the request of the typing pool. Am I going to see Sir Charles? Well, or would you prefer me to go on? I'm sure these gentlemen would be most intrigued to hear of your little jaunt to Paris in March 1958. Let me see now. What was her name? And and does this really snotty thing where he says you were born in Bootle uh, and tried to hide it. Uh, Bootle is near Liverpool, which means that Uh he got a Liverpudlian accent. That's all that means. And he demands to see Sir Charles. Uh, And another man does show up and they have an exchange here. What is your name? Code or real? In France, Duval. In Germany, Schmidt. You would know me best as ZM73. And your code number is PR12. Do you want more? We learn that Six's code name in France is Duval, which is like, you know, being being in America, Smith. And his in Germany, it's Schmidt, which is literally like Smith. Um, he's got a code number, ZM73. <laughs> But, um, and he's going to, after all this time of refusing to adopt a number, he's just tossing around his old number like, yep, this is me. Uh, They go up one of those And after all this time of refusing to touch or kiss a woman. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's when he, he <laughs> sorry i'm just so i'm so impatient to get to his reunion with janet glenn i, it's, yep, yep, I yep. please <laughs> but first we have to go up one of those open lifts those open elevators that you mm-hmm. step onto mm-hmm. and you must step off of it at exactly the right moment or else you're going to have your head crushed i hate those things they terrify me <laughs> i've i have never been on one. Oh, i just to look at them i just like if you trip what if you trip you're gonna have your foot crushed anyway mm-hmm. uh, because they, they never stop anyway um this right. is where we get it's like the kind of open-sided uh, elevator that resulted in uh, michael ironside at the end of a fisticuffs getting both his arms severed in some movie that you have chided me for referencing too many times. It must have been The Lion in Winter. Yes, I think it was. See you you at the party, Richter. (laughs) Uh, This is the dialogue. King Rosarian Puna, your baccarat's dropped to skaters. You claim to be ZM73, and I can prove it. Do so. I could pitch this on a very personal level, Sir Charles. Don't spare my feelings. Speak as freely as you wish. Very well. Jugged hair was on the menu. I will confine myself to simple domestic details of no interest to anyone except the family. He gets, for, for demanding this meeting, which lasts all of 45 seconds, like he gets nowhere with Sir Charles because, you know, obviously anything he says could be, uh, could be the product of interrogation. Right, right. You are a keen Rosarian. And it was when you were pruning your baccarats, those ones down by the little goldfish pool, when I asked you for permission to marry your daughter. <laughs> I remember you dropped the secretaries. I never understood why. Because it couldn't have been all that much of a surprise to you. The next day, you took me to lunch at your club. Our favorite dish, jugged hare, was on the uh, After this very, very, very brief meeting, he returns well, well, home. Hang on. What, what was he, when he starts off trying to, to convince Sir Charles, he says, you know, I could, I could take this on a very personal level. And Sir Charles says, you know, go for it. And then he says, very well, I shall confine myself to details only. So what was the, like, what was the more salacious version of uh, what I'm going to tell yeah. the world about your, your goldfish pond and your baccaras? Yep. <laughs> and, and your cicadas. Gonna... <laughs> 17-year cicadas. Anyway, uh, he gets nowhere with Sir Charles. He returns home, followed by a hearse. This dude seems to have a blind spot mm. when it comes to hearses. He just does not notice them. <laughs> There is a hell of a lot of Magoon voice over here, none of which works, even though it's Magoon. He drives to Janet's party. She's having a perfectly beastly time. It's the same set as Madame Dean's party. It's the same set as the professor's wife's salon. Yep. It's, uh, and blink and you miss it, but the waiter who serves him his champagne is the undertaker who has been trailing Ah, okay. He dances with Janet, and though Magoon took stock to test for imitating him, he does capture some of McGowan's cockiness here in this scene. I think uh, he asks her to get him a slip of paper he left with her. She gets it for him. Eventually, it takes her a while. I'm sorry, Priscilla. <laughs> here it is. Thank you. Now, what was the message? And then I guess we're supposed to think, oh, this is his signature move. Simply this. He kisses her on the cheek and then on the other cheek and then the nose. And he just goes for it. Uh, and like that's supposed to be like it must be you. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I felt like he was making up for the fact that <laughs> McGowan wouldn't would not film a kiss. That's right. Uh, and I actually thought he was kind of parodying the the hair stroking from Times of Big Ben at the beginning. Like, what, what was the message? He says only yeah. this. Oh, and then he he starts off with the hair stroke. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, and this is this is this is what I mean about his cockiness. Who else could have given you that message? 
possible. Couldn't you say? Nobody but you. He says, nobody else could have given mm-hmm. you that message. And then he leans <laughs> in for another kiss. And then, Chris, we fade to black. I mean, we don't cut to a train entering a tunnel, but we do I mean, fade to black, which is, I think, code for they got up to something. I, it's not the first time that Madame Ungadine's garden fountain has witnessed some conjugal interaction. Uh, well, I mean, Madame Ungadine, you know. <laughs> Ungadine? She's so French. I was watching Star Trek Three the other night because, you know. And I had, I had forgotten that they deal with Ponfar and that because we have a rapidly oh, yeah. aging adolescent Spock. And when my dad took me to see that movie in the summer of 1984, I definitely didn't understand that Spock and Zavik bang. I mean, it's all implied. It's all off screen. But it, uh, all we see is not even the, the Vulcan salute. It's just like they're sort of pressed their palms against one another. Very uh, Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And then, then we just cut back to the Klingon ship or wherever. Yeah, I missed that. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get what yeah. was happening there when when I saw this movie the first time. Magoon would have approved, but we don't see him. You know, wake up and then throw in his clothes. Uh, <laughs> Janet's house. He instead, we see him walk into a camera shop to pick up a roll of film. And I don't understand this scene, Chris. This guy who is playing the camera shop owner is making so many big choices. I know. I love that. It, it seems like it. It's, we're meant to pick up on something right. on how especially creepy this dude is. Yeah. How weird and over the top his creepiness is here. It's, it seems like it should have, like, I'd, I'd, I'd watch an episode about this guy. I would too. And I would expect nothing less of an actor named Lockwood West. Sure. Arr, Lockwood West. Great name. Great name. It's a great name. Here we are, sir. If you'll be kind enough to sign. Oh, that was quick. Oh, there's only one, sir. It's been signed for already. Uh, yes, a, a stupid clerical error, I'm afraid. Uh, one of our juniors handed over your transparencies in mistake for this number. A pure carelessness, of course. Confusing the last figures 01 and 10. Needless to say, he wasn't with us for very long. However, no damage was done because Mr. Carmichael returned your transparencies the moment he... Discovered our mistake. How very good of Mr. Carmichael. Very kind of you to take it that way, sir. Uh, alas, no business can be entirely free from the occasional clerical error. The slides, because that's what they are, the slides that he's, he's coming here for... Transparencies. <laughs> ...have been signed <laughs> and returned. Obviously, we are meant very, to believe... Very good of you to take it that way. ...by the stuffed shirts and the cold open. Then the undertaker is there whom we're led to believe is the villain surveillance guy to be distinguished from the other service guy who is with British intelligence. So there's two people tailing him. I think it'll be satisfactory to the passport authorities. Thank you. Pleasure, sir. He uh, examines the slides at home uh, on his home projector and finds clues to Kandersfeld, Austria. And then, shout out to the music supervisor because as he he enters... uh, France, we get Frenchy French accordion music. <laughs> and then when we get to Austria, we get different Austrian accordion music. It's just the theme from the third man. That zither. There's a whole bunch of business here that is unnecessary. He talks to a waiter who tells him that the, the saltsman is over there. He's a barber. <laughs> so we confront saltsman who is passing himself off as a barber. There's a lot of back and forth. Hey, Helen, I may as well come to the point. 
I don't want to shave. I want your help. Desperately. In what way, sir? We have met before. But you can possibly remember me, because the first time we met, I looked like this. He proves that he has the same handwriting. S sentimental people are very... No, wait. Stupid people are... No, wait. What, what is it? <laughs> I wrote it down. Uh, well, sentimental course, people, people are often stupid, I think. Sentimental right? people are sometimes stupid. Yes. It's a hopeless yeah. situation. If I had kept it, I would have been very stupid. Silly. You've made your point. I accept it. But you overlook one thing. Sentimental people are sometimes stupid. Very stupid. I forgot to mention that he does say, oh, interesting, my handwriting is the same. Now, you got a different hand, right? Yeah. You're not holding the pen in the same way. Uh, that's that's another bit that they do in The Lion in Winter. Uh-huh. Sorry, I meant Total Recall. Uh-huh. When he's trying, when Quaid is trying to remember if he's the same, you know, oh, is that a, like is that brainwashed secret. Yeah, we see him. He gets a note from his, like, pre-brainwashing self. Mm -hmm. He has a flash and goes back and just writes his name and it's the same signature and he's kind of like, oh, God damn it. The address that of where Saltzman was standing in Scotland, which is what uh, this letter, uh, this is how he recognizes the same handwriting, is addressed to Port Marion Road in Scotland. Oh. That's a little, a little hint, a little mm. hint to the audience that, that I uh, don't think McGowan would have approved of. I really don't think. It just doesn't seem like his kind of thing to be quite that cute, but... No, I mean, I kind of wonder if people were like actively undermining him by this point, if they just had enough of his shit. I mean, mo most of the, the key creative people had not returned after that initial 13 episode production block. It was a lot of, a lot of new faces for these final four episodes. Mm -hmm. The British intelligence guy finds them. There's a fist fight in a cellar that distracted me because it looked an awful lot like Benny Hill's cellar in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> when are we doing the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang episode? Uh, I have thoughts on thoughts. Iron Fleming. The Undertaker guy comes and gasses them, and then they return to the village. There's this talk of Ernest Rutherford, who uh, split the atom, and mm -hmm. how science, blah, 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 bad, blah, 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 can be perverted, etc. Uh, the professor agrees to reverse the process under his condition, and number two says to this German man, in to, to express his accordance with his wishes, Heil, which, ooh, that doesn't taste great now, 80 mm. years after the war. I'm guessing... I mean, did it taste great 20 years after the war? That's what mm. I'm saying. I can't imagine it was great then. That's about the same. It'd be like making a 9-11 joke now, right? It's yeah. roughly the same span of time. A little bit longer, right. but not very much. Right. So the wacky thing is that as they lay these two guys out on these various tables, uh, Saltzman hooks himself into the machine as well. And here's the thing you have to know, um, that we know that the uh, that number two does not. He has placed his mind in the body of the colonel. He has put the colonel's mind in the body of Saltzman, who is dying, and he's put six back in six. And he escapes the village, basically. And number six wakes up and informs number two of that. The good doctor's mind now inhabits a body perhaps not to his liking. The colonel's. Dr. Sulzman had progressed more than any of us had anticipated. He can and did change three minds at the same time. He is now free to continue his experiments in peace. 
way, says at least he is now free to continue his experiments in peace. Is he? Because he just gets up in the helicopter, the helicopter which number two could reverse with a, one call on a yellow phone. And um, he's he, they're going to find him again because it's the village. Look, if you're trying to get a pigeon out of the village, they've covered. But they are, they're not prepared to take down helicopters, Glenn. The, the beam is only so strong. Beam, I forgot about the beam. <laughs> How could you forget about the beam? Minimum strength. <laughs> uh, so he's can f- continue his experiments in peace. What peaceful use could thought transference have? I mean, yes, spies. Spies, not particularly peaceful. Yeah. And they don't commandeer the helicopter. Well, if you're an old dying guy and you're uh, a scientific mind on the caliber of Seltzman, mm-hmm. it probably wouldn't take too too much for you to talk yourself into, you know, this uh, perfectly healthy 20-year-old man is an, is an idiot. He's unlikely to invent anything that's going to help humankind. Why don't I just uh, renew myself, uh, buy myself a few more decades there's an issue of consent here, right? Because <laughs> he, he basically killed the colonel. Yeah. Um, essentially. I, it's, 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 yes. Mad scientists famously worried about consent. Yeah. It's a it's a really sympathetic portrayal of Saltzman. Like, Saltzman is a guy who is... Um, it was like he just and Six a, were friends, right? Like a kindly uh, yeah. old mad scientist. <laughs> a kindly old, old murderous brain mad scientist. transferring barber. Yeah. And I tell you what, I, I'll bet you he was no barber, Glenn. I bet you he was he was harvesting uh, material for meat pies uh, <laughs> at his barber shop. <laughs> That's my suspicion. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 everything about this plot is a reach. Uh, and you know, poor Janet, <laughs> love him and leave him again. Like, yeah, I love that Janet after after not seeing him for a year. Just uh, she she recognizes the car parked outside. And then mm-hmm. just goes to his house. Like, he ghosts her. Mm-hmm. And I guess that, like, this is the first time in a year that she mm-hmm. has bothered to talk to her father about where her disappearing fiancé might be. Mm-hmm. Like, she didn't go to him on, like, day three. <laughs> you know, yep. when he didn't he didn't come back, didn't call and say, like, Dad, do you know anything about your trusted high-level employee who is also engaged to your daughter? Did, is there anything you can tell me about that? Yep. And I got to say that were I ghosted by, were I a woman ghosted by a man, I see his car back in front of his house for the first time in a year, and I go to the door, and a dude in a robe answers with ruffled <laughs> hair, answers the door. I don't know if I'm going to make the same leap that she yeah. makes, or the, I think there's a conclusion that is much more to hand than the one that she makes, yeah. which is like, is he here? I mean, yeah. He's here. I mean, of course, we're, we were not allowed to know his name ever, right? But the, the fact that her father says to her, I assume you're talking about your fiancé. Like, he won't even speak his name. Yeah. yeah what's yeah, what's going on in this family? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, it seems like Six could was just about to marry into some serious money. Like, yeah. They're talking about jugged hair. They've got a goldfish <laughs> pond. they got baccaras. Do we think that his um, his resignation might have jeopardized the union? Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, you you never want to shit where you eat, right? I mean, so like this is this is like uh, office romances or even kind of secondary romances. Like, yeah. like you know, it's like one one degree removed is still uh-huh. still 
iffy. So, I mean, I dodged a bullet there. I, I love Sir Charles, obviously, because he's just, just reminds me of, of M so much of, of Bernard Lee mm-hmm. M right. Who I seems to live in great, great style. And like the one bond movie where bond goes to his, his home. He, of course he lives in a gigantic mansion with a Butler and he's practicing his lepidoptery or something when, when mm-hmm. bond comes over and interrupts him. It's like, you don't seem like someone who needs to work. Admiral. Well, modern Bond has gone to Judy Dench's house a couple times, right? Hasn't he? he yeah, he, he breaks into her her mm-hmm. apartment in Casino Royale. Apartment. And that's she right. she apartment, but I mean it has a private elevator, like it's it's sure. spacious, it's overlooking, you know, the Tims probably or no, no, that's but that's no, how uh, we we get that he's uh he's a badass rogue cuz he he breaks right. into her her house. But no, she they can't afford baccaras, can't afford cicadas in that little apartment <laughs> of hers. <laughs> Yeah, so let's rate this episode, Chris. I my 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 gut is to go NA because this to me is not an episode of The Prisoner. This is not. It doesn't have a sufficient oh, clever. weirdness. Doesn't weird it, this this doesn't have sufficient weirdness for me to mm. give it a prisoner-esque rating. Not applicable. Okay. Okay. Mm. One to six. I'm going to give it a C minus. <laughs> okay. All right. A gentlemanly. And I will C-. tell you why because the actual brain swap machine. I love it. I love the sound it makes. I love the goggles that you have to wear. I love that. And the real zappiness. Do we think mm-hmm. that that is that is post the the zappiness is put in in post, or do you think it's actually you like slice the the coating off of some wires on the set and just uh, <laughs> like 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 rubbing some jumper cables together? Or uh, yeah, that's a good question. Didn't look like a like a composite effect, right? And we're still at the era where people want to do fake lightning. They make it look like a cartoon. You know what I'm talking about? There's still a lot of, like, fakey-fake lightning that really looks like yeah, somebody's yeah, yeah. through it. So I don't know. If it is, yeah, I agree with you. I like the machine. But, boy, just the hoops this plot has to yeah. look through. And the, the Avengers had done, um, they've done several brain swap episodes. But they're, I think the best one, the one that was from the Diana Rigg era, Who's Who, aired just a few months before this did this initially aired in england december 22nd 1967 by the way so this is their big christmas episode (laughs) (laughs) a heartwarming tale just then they brought some some figgy pudding and some jugged hair let's all gather around the hearth (laughs) to jug us some hair i have the uh the set of the the beatles christmas fan club records I don't know if you've ever heard some excerpts from these, but yeah, if you're in the Beatles fan club, they they mailed you a, a single every every Christmas time for the seven or eight consecutive years they were together, and if, as you know, like their their records, they they got increasingly elaborate and more surreal as they went on. But they had like little nonsensical skits and some original songs, and that's just I don't know, '60s British Christmas. That's the association that I that I have. I I love mm-hmm. those those records. Sitting with me in the studio tonight is a cross-section of British youth. I'd like, first of all, to speak to you, Sir Gerald. Oh, not a bit of it. We had a job to do, Michael. Uh, Yes, yes, quite. I don't think you're answering my question. Oh, let me put it this way. There was a job to be done. (laughs) Christmas time is here again. Christmas time is here again. On to the next round. All right, so that is our discussion of Do Not Forsake Me. Oh, my darling. Okay, so so now we're going to... I can't do it. Break. It's it's a tongue thing, not a throat thing. I don't know. <laughs> it's a... Dra- it's... Break? 
Right. It's, it's the tongue against the, the the soft palate, the hard palate actually, not the soft palate. It's, it's the mm. tongue against the hard palate. It's like it's not the Eartha Kit. It's not that back of the throat thing. <laughs> well, I mean, my Eartha Kit kills. Like I, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, listeners can't handle it. They ask me for my Eartha Kit, and I have to give them my Julie Newmar because I know <laughs> they they can't handle my kit. Yes, but can they handle your Lee Merriweather? That's the question. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, on this our wedding day. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, wait, wait long. The noonday train will bring Frank Miller. Chris, question for you. Do we get letters? Do we get letters? Do we get letters every day? Should we reach on in and pull one out? We we do get letters. We get letters many days. Uh, Okay. Do we get letters? Do we get letters? Do we get letters occasionally? Yes. And if we're going to keep this on a metaphorical level, I will reach into the virtual mailbag all the way up to the distinct sunburn line that remains on my arm after four weeks. That was a real, real scorching I gave myself. Oh man! So wait, are you? Did you give yourself a, a scorcher in a t-shirt or a tank top? Neither. It was one of my cycling shirts that are sort of uh, like yeah. nylony. It's, uh, but they're yeah. they're sort of fake Western shirts. Like they're meant to look like normal shirts, so that you could go have lunch somewhere and not look like a fool do wearing one of these the, things. Do they have the pearl buttons? They do. Oh really? Yes. Yeah. That's something fancy. They're still uh, lightweight, quick drying. Uh-huh. All that. So that, that's how I, I got the like very distinct Power Girls inverted triangle of this is the thing. scorched flesh under my chin. Yep, yep. Do they wick? How are they unwicking? They wick? Oh, they they wick like they're a member of the high table. There we Glenn. go. See. Off the dome, people. Off the dome. They will do no business on the grounds of the Continental, but um, mm-hmm. otherwise mm-hmm. Their, their wicking is very reliable. I think they're back. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking they're back. <laughs> so, letter number one. I am just I am just aping Letterman here because, you know, I figure it's, it's fitting because Letterman. Letterman's yeah, letter. it's a shame that our listeners can't tell when you take your, your blue note cards and just sort of frisbee them towards, yep. the, towards the camera of your laptop. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You go first. All right. Uh, this first one is from Paul Jackson, who sent us... His version of our ridiculous, tired, <laughs> strained, uh, over, okay. over extended. It's the one actual idea that I had for the show. So, <laughs> I know, so thanks. I know. Thanks, buddy. Said with love. Uh, so he, he, he begins thusly. We push it like George W. Push. You're going you're gonna to pick up a theme here. <laughs> we file it like Philo Doe, or Philo Doe, the way some of us would say. Anyway, we, we stamp it like Ren and Stampy. We index it like Windex. We brief it like the Great Barrier Brief. We debrief it like where's the brief? I suddenly know how old Paul is, by the way. <laughs> we number it like an Umber Hulk. A little Dungeons and Dragons reference there for you. Oh, Paul, I That's got it. That's why I it. sent you that one. I got it. <laughs> I got that. Now, what he's doing here is what I have done on several occasions, which is just, you know, just switch out a letter, switch out a vowel. Uh, add a W, index, windex. Uh, and I think he is ruthlessly fair with himself. Cheap wordplay, he says, one out of six. What would you grade? 
Paul, I'm going to give you a gentleman's four out of six. I think you undervalue your own work. I agree, and I'm going to give him an extra point uh, for Umber Hulk because I am, <laughs> as uh, as Sigourney Weaver says in Working Girl, I am, after all, me. Uh, I'm going to give him a three out of six. I mean, it would have been a two out of six mm. because, again, some of these are pretty sweaty, mm. Paul, but I, I will give you a, a solid three out of six. You are being too hard on yourself. It is cheap wordplay, but... <laughs> What are you listening to? Come on. Indeed. All right. Mike Nothnagel. 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 Yes. This is one I should have forwarded to you because there is a screen cap in it that may be relevant. I think it will. Uh, Dear Glenn and Chris, even though I know you won't read this first part on the podcast, I'm still going to say this show is redacted and you two are redacted. I'm I'm taking out the adjectives because I know I know you just can't take it. I'm finally getting around to writing about a thing that has occupied space in my brain since the first time I saw the prisoner, however many years ago. In arrival on the panel of buttons at the information kiosk where number six hails the taxi, all the buttons that should have a number with seven somewhere in them and only those buttons have something else instead. Screenshot attached for evidence. Okay. The seven button has a six. The 17 button is replaced with one saying two cents. Uh, uh, and it, it really does look like that is a two with a, with a little C next to it. I mean, maybe uh, in England that represents something else, but Mike is not lying. The 27 button is a one and so on. You never see the entire right side of the panel up close, but based on the layout of the panel, it almost certainly works there. Also, in the one column of keys on the right side that you do see up close, the top key with the number two and some other symbol is where the 73 should be. Okay. I'm a little confused now because I don't know that where we have 73 distinct buttons. The key well, there's a lot of buttons. Yeah. 91 is where the 97 should be. This observation has lived rent-free in my puzzle-solving brain for a long time, and if either of you or the, or the listeners has any idea why the buttons are like that, I'd be eternally grateful to hear it. Be seeing you... Mike. So the the salient point here is uh, I'm looking at a panel with a whole bunch of buttons and uh, they are numbered sequentially for the most part. I mean, there are there are some missing, but but uh, Mike is speaks the truth. There's there's no seven anywhere. That is puzzling. Do you read anything into that? Because, again, this show was made in 1967-68 when television screens were the size of a postage stamp, and there was no replay, right? And there certainly was no freeze frame. So I bet these guys just just threw in some some numbers and some stickers onto top of buttons just to kind of do things. I I wouldn't go – I wouldn't uh, attempt to glean any kind of national treasure meaning out of this. Okay, but – what is the likelihood that the keys that would just be missing and need to be filled in with something else are all the keys that should have sevens on them? Yeah. I mean, that seems seems pretty unlikely, right? It, uh, maybe they just didn't have <laughs> the budget for a seven. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, it's certainly they, they really had to economize on the, the badges, as we've said. Neither of us are mathematicians, so I, I certainly couldn't speculate what the total number of potential two and three digit numbers is. But uh, I'm going to say it's, you know, just based on the prisoner, there are mm, 10 or perhaps even 12 different <laughs> possible combinations of two and three digits sure. uh, in numerology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So listeners, if anyone can explain, and, I, and I'm going to take the screen cap that Mike has provided and put it on our, our Instagram so you can all see what he's talking about. It is more than like when you you get on an elevator and uh, you know this the floors go from twelve to fourteen. 
it's yeah, sure. uh it's much more than that i mean there are a lot of places here that should be sevens and um there ain't no sevens i don't know unless that's uh an expression of patrick mcguin's disdain for for james bond i don't know mm-hmm. The next letter is from a Michael S. And I say Michael S. only because other podcasts don't use people's full names. And I feel like maybe we should not be using full names. I know we've already done it. so But we're learning, people. We're learning as we go. And, you know, if you give us permission to use your full name, we will. But otherwise, maybe erring on the side of caution, except for Mike. Uh, good old Mike and Paul. <laughs> we've already ruined anyway. Um, well, well uh, Paul included a pronunciation guide to his name, which I take to mean he is quite willing to, to have his name read on the show. These are good. I th- just think it sounds more professional to say, you know, Michael S. or Michael name withheld. Anyway. <laughs> um, Lonely in Schenectady writes. <laughs> it's exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, Michael S.'s letter is about how his dad used to tell him about this show uh, called The Prisoner that he watched in the 60s and had some connection to Danger Man, but he never saw it. And then one night in the mid-80s, he comes home. It wasn't ready to sleep yet, so I turned on the TV and was immediately struck by what was on. I quickly realized it was The Prisoner and said a nerdy rapture soaking up every minute, only to discover it was the final episode. Boy, that's... <laughs> whew, boy. Uh, I, 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 I admire... <laughs> And, and fear for you. But <laughs> also, my father never returned, but uh, I barely <laughs> yeah. noticed that because the TV show was so weird. Uh, both thrilling and depressing, exclamation point. Hoping to watch more, I checked the TV guide. It wasn't listed that night. It wasn't listed in the past. It wasn't listed weeks to come. So it wasn't until the DVD set came out that I finally watched the rest of the show. That must have been frustrating as hell. My experience with this, as I think we talked about in maybe a lost episode, is that, you know, the TV critic for the Philadelphia, I'm going to say Inquirer, could have been the Bulletin, had a column that said, look, WHYY, public PBS is, is going to be broadcasting. Glenn, this, this was your uh, your kind of sort of NPR colleague, David B. and Cooley. David B. and Cooley, exactly. According to you. I mean, I According haven't checked me, this I, independently, I, but that's I what you forgotten. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he was like, nope, look, you guys got to know this is coming and it's great. So, you know, gird your loins. And I did. But to, to stumble upon any episode, we shouldn't spoil it because it's still coming up. But man, that episode is weird as fuck. And uh, I, I would be so intrigued. And you must have been so disappointed because every other episode isn't quite that banana pants. <laughs> wow. Did you say that he saw a broadcast of Fallout that was not listed in TV Guide? It was like a like a covert transmission of uh, like some <laughs> kind of pirate signal. It was yeah. Uh, yeah. We control the vertical. We control the horizontal. <laughs> I love that. I don't care if that's apocryphal or, or an error. Or if uh, you know you dreamt it, I don't care. I want I it to believe be, our listeners, Chris. That's I want to believe. Separates me and you. <laughs> I love it, Arturo. Magadin writes, "Dear Chris and Glenn, sorry for being late with these when you are already several episodes ahead." I'm watching the episodes before listening to the podcast, and I'm a bit behind. I am greatly enjoying the podcast. Sorry, Glenn. Uh, I just listened to the episode on the general. There were some illusions about this, but isn't it clear that A, B, and C should follow the general rather than than precede it? Yes, yes, it certainly is. If nothing else, during the title montage of the general, the answer to who are you? I'm sorry, to who are you? Is (laughs) the new number two. Well, the answer in A, B, and C is I am number two. I'm a bit surprised you didn't mention this explicitly. And since the general is not a failure to break number six or extract information, there was perhaps no reason to change number two in between. Regards, Arturo Magadan. Uh, yes, so clearly A, B, and C was intended to follow the general. It was shot after the general. 
And I don't know. I I sort of inferred that the Colin Gordon number two was held responsible for number six having destroyed the general. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of let him in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yep. that's how I explain Gordon's uh, increased level of desperation and distemper Agreed. and uh, milk drinking in. There's a, B, many and more C. shots. There's many more shots in, of milk drinking in A, B, and C, which which in, which. <laughs> goes to his anxiety level, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's right. Right. So that's just a matter of fact that, that uh, A, B, and C was made after the general, but but yes, this is uh, some astute viewing to uh, pick that up. Got another one from Steve M. <laughs> so it's just going to be me doing it. I don't care. That's fine. Yes, you're, you're redacting names. Uh, Steve M. has binged the series many times, but not in a long time, just, just like us. His first watch was at age 13 in the summer of 1968, the initial U.S. run. Boy, that must have been something. Uh, He sucked up anything sci-fi weird surreal, so I have been a lifelong devotee of Star Trek, Toss Only, The Prisoner, and, gird yourself, Chris, the 1967 version of Casino Royale, Don't Judge Me. Uh, I'm afraid that's impossible. (laughs) Um, I'm way behind, yada, yada, yada. He says, you've danced around a bit on the question of who runs the village. Somewhere I got the idea that there was some secret global organization that transcended national and curtain boundaries that provided mm-hmm. these services to any nation spy agency that would pay enough. Now, that's interesting. I have heard this theory about, mm. you know, a, a transnational, you know, right. globo, cobra-like <laughs> entity, but not <laughs> that they provide the service I to anyone who would pay. I'm not cobra commander who would <laughs> say that. Exactly. Uh, so I think that's interesting. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the idea of of uh, nations becoming obsolete uh, systems of, of organization is something that Leo McKern, number two, talks about explicitly in The Chimes of Big Ben and Some presents that as sort of a desirable option. Has it ever occurred to you that you're just as much a prisoner as I am? Oh, my dear chap, of course, I knew too much. We're both lifers. I am definitely an optimist. That's why it doesn't matter who number one is. It doesn't matter which side runs the village. It's run by one side or the other. Oh, certainly. But both sides are becoming identical. What, in fact, has been created? An international community. A perfect blueprint for world order. When the sides facing each other suddenly realize that they're looking into a mirror, they will see that this is the pattern for the future. The whole earth as the village. That is my hope. What's yours? I'd like to be the first man on the moon. (laughs) The idea of of it being not an an organization like Spectre or or Cobra Mm -hmm. uh, that's Mm -hmm. that's out to sow chaos, but rather one that simply wants to sell its services to various nations is interesting. Um, And a little topical now, like we just had this uh, pipeline turned off by hackers and and, I'm reading a lot of coverage of this about how it's they're being treated as a kind of a business right (laughs) rather than a a criminal conspiracy that uh, needs to be shut down this is such a cop-out and I say that every every time but I I'm just can't get to behind trying to come up with a rational explanation for the 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 village just saying it's some mass hallucination um some Kafka-esque metaphor for the increased alienation that man, every man, you might say, is, is experiencing as, as we careen into the final third of the 20th century, if you, can, if you can imagine such a thing. 
I mean, I really think that's it. And that's a, that is a boring fucking take, but I really think, I really think that's, that's it. I think, and I, and I think maybe that's why Mark Steen quit. Cause I think Mark Steen might've been like, no, that's bullshit, Pat. You need to, <laughs> there, there needs to be some kind of through line here. There needs to be some kind of solution. Yeah. Here's, here's my, uh, theory you say you've seen you steve you've seen this uh, several times you've seen the run several times every time you get to uh fallout your brain just says that's not it <laughs> you go back every time you go back you're like no maybe it's this maybe it's this maybe it's this uh yes. i do like, think like it's when i saw the phantom menace the first mm-hmm. time and i was like oh well i just watched that movie incorrectly my bad <laughs> i'll yep. try again tomorrow <laughs> yep after walking out of matrix reloaded you're like it doesn't make any sense but it's still cool now, I, I do think it's interesting when Liam McCurran says it doesn't matter which side runs the village, which implies that he doesn't know, which I think is... I was going to say that. I didn't yeah. know if he was playing dumb for Six's benefit or if he was... Uh, but, I, I mean, certainly I... And and again, we could, we could get into whether this is a just yet another... Uh, strategy to try to lower Six's defenses, but I felt like like he is the number two who most tries to ingratiate himself to Six, most tries to relate to him and be like, yeah, we're we're both in this this crazy situation together, but uh, but look at the bright side, we're both lifers. Hits the L really hard. <laughs> um, Steve also has some thoughts on Schizoid Man. He says that his theory all along, you know, every time he's seen it, is that Six and Twenty Four have a real friendship. And that 24's mind reading is, is in real ESP, but he admits that that's kind of very unmaguinish, which is also very unreal. But, and then he he suspects that... You are like it, Harry Houdini debunking his I spiritualists. Am, you am, you are on a crusade think, here, Glenn. Dude. I think James Randi was too concerned. <laughs> Unseen to us, 24 is later told by the powers that be something like betray him or we'll come after your family. So that's his theory, that, that her threatened. So that's why she does that. It's not often one gets a second chance. There are no second chances. There are sometimes for the lucky ones. If I had a second chance, I want you to know that I wouldn't do it again. But this later viewing of the episode and listening to your comments, another possibility occurred to me. What if she was a plant all along, so the whole ESP thing could have been engineered to create a seemingly ironclad proof of his identity. There's a big flaw in that logic. And uh, and then shattered to contribute to a breakdown. Did the initial relationship seem too real for this to be plausible? Yes. Frankly, yes. I think um, I, I think her performance, that actress' performance, is just she she shows she's acting real regret, real grief there, and I I I just don't think it's I don't yes. think we're meant to read it that Jane, way. Doesn't matter. Jane Marrow. Jane Marrow. I don't think I we're think. meant to read it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, what's your thoughts on that? On that? Bold, fresh take. Whether well, the, the, she was a plant, and that that their entire friendship was uh, a, entire a falsehood, was a, an elaborate ruse. Uh huh. Like a, like a thin tissue of lies. Like Sean Young's memories in Blade Runner. Boy, okay, yeah, sure, like like that. What? Nothing. What was that eye roll for? Okay, One Blade first Blade Runner reference on this podcast. I don't believe that's true. Glenn, I am the arbiter of the objectively so. I am the keeper of the record. I am the person who hears all these episodes multiple times. <laughs> it's true, you are. You can trust me on this. Uh-huh. And you love Blade Runner. Why are you? I mean, I agree. I, I, no, I mean, it I, is a, yeah, like, okay, we are, we are two white guys who are old and have a fucking podcast and we're talking about Blade Runner. I mean, there's part of that. Some of it's that, yeah. So what's another pop culture thing that deals with fake memories, fake implanted memories? That's not Philip K. Dick. Let's see. Well, one of them, of course, is the also Philip K. Dick written and off reference, much to your chagrin, The Lion in Winter. Uh, But (laughs) uh, 
Uh, you zigged. You zagged. I like. I like Consider zag. that a divorce. Okay. Lion in winter. <laughs> Podcast with a Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. Who the hell am I? Yep. It's... Also, get your ass to Mars. Okay. So, is there another letter? <laughs> Please, God. <clears throat> Subject line about grains. Oh. Uh, this is from John Mills. Not John Milius of uh, Conan the Barbarian and uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, speaking of uh, the Austrian oak. Just listening to the A Change of Mind episode today, and it sounded like you were unaware that grains is a unit of measure, Glenn. There are 7,000 grains to one pound. I don't know about drugs, but grains are used in reloading ammunition. Maybe this is John Milius. To measure both the amount of powder used and the weight of the actual bullet. For example, if you are reloading a typical... 308 Winchester round, 7.62 millimeter NATO, <laughs> you might choose to use a 165 grain bullet with 41 grains of IMR 4320 powder. Then again, you might opt for a heavier 185 grain boat tail bullet and 47 grains of Hodgden H380 powder. I enjoy the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have been well, aware we of the should prisoner. be grateful for that because he <laughs> yeah. certainly knows his ordinance. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh man. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah the, I do remember. Uh, like in, I think I think it's Sudden Impact, which I'm going to say is the fourth Dirty Harry movie, because you got to refresh your gimmick every so often, and uh, Dirty Harry has to renew his his speech about the most powerful handgun in the world, so he switches to the 44 Automag. Um, from his old trusty revolver, and man, that that scene, that scene in Dirty Harry from '71, the original, where he threatens that suspect about claiming not to remember how many rounds he's fired, whether his his uh, revolver is empty or not. Really hard to watch now. I always yeah. thought it was a cool scene growing up, but Jesus yeah. Christ, like that yeah. is something that just does not does not play in 2021. Yeah, at all. Yep. But I, I remember him having a monologue in Sudden Impact about the number of grains per shell. So not being a, a firearms enthusiast myself, that was... Uh... All right. Letter concludes. I enjoyed the podcast. I've been aware of The Prisoner for a long time, but never put the time in to watch it all the way through. So this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, John. Yes, John. And if it sounded like I didn't know that grains were a unit of measure, <laughs> it's because... John, I didn't know that cranes were a unit of measure. Uh, but uh, that's interesting. Um, it, it seems, I guess... Gunpowder, drug powder, you measure them both in grains, I guess. It's Hang on, a... Glenn. I'm going to read another email. I know it's your turn, but I'm going to read another one before you, you dig yourself any deeper here. Subject line, grains are a thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, favorable verb redacted, the podcast. You two have a favorable adjective redacted, rapport. I first watched The Prisoner with my sister in the 1980s in my teens. Okay. Women. That's great. I feel like this is a heavily male audience probably and and not just because McGowan treats women so badly on the show most of the time, which I, I'm ashamed to admit is not something that 12-year-old self really took note of the first time I, I saw it. Anyway, I'm just I'm so happy to be hearing from women who are into this and, and, and were earlier. So I'll just shut up and, and uh, keep reading what Jenny has to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm mansplaining her email. That's that's, that's great. That's exactly what you're really, doing. Really, really good. The, the the phrase that leapt to my mind. I first watched The Prisoner with my sister in the 1980s in my teens. One of the cable channels, Bravo maybe, had rebroadcast it, and our neighbor Donna recorded it on VHS. 
Okay, so that's Donna, Jenny, and Jenny's sister all watching The Prisoner together. I love it. I love it. She lent us the tapes, so we binged them in a few days. I'm totally enjoying rewatching the show and finding your podcast. These are all nice things, so I won't read them. I wanted to let you know that the grains are real. They are an old-fashioned way of measuring medication. It is still used as a measure of dosage in some forms of thyroid meds, although you can also order them in milligrams. Also, Glenn, I am not as informed about rugs and blankets as I am about pharmacology, but I believe I've come across blankets being called lap rugs in English literature. Thanks for reading. Best Jenny Kalina, M-S-P-A-C-R-Y-T, Certified Nutrition Coach. All right, then. Okay. I, I All right. Sit Any, anything corrected. else you want to you wanna expose your blinding with ignorance about, in my lap. Glenn? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> rug. Rug! <laughs> Cold. <laughs> grains. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, milligrams works better than grains, right? Anyway. Anyway, um, but this this is all interesting. <laughs> I, I, I learned a life lesson was learned. Uh-huh. I, 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 I sense God in this chilies tonight. <clears throat> hero or anti-hero? Citizens Advice Bureau. I am not going to tell you how redacted I am. You are doing this podcast. A question has been brewing in my brain over these last few episodes. Is number six supposed to be considered hero or anti-hero? Or is he just protagonist i don't know glenn what's an example you can think of where someone is just protagonist um i have a uh, i have a word and a gesture i have a word and a gesture for you chris (laughs) or is he just protagonist the village has been wildly ineffective at generating a sense of menace lately so number six just seems to be more of an irritating bastard than a trapped man desperate to escape a hostile situation True. (laughs) Admittedly, I haven't seen the whole series, so I'm not sure if they put the pressure on more in upcoming episodes or not. Oh, you sweet summer child. Oh, Glenn. This is now I'm remembering why I didn't send you this one because I wanted to put you on the spot with this final query. One last thought. And, and while, you, while you're already devoting, I, I hope, a substantial amount of, of your considerable RAM to whether Six is a hero, an anti-hero, or merely a protagonist like John David Washington and Tenet. One last thought. It is a shame that McGowan never got to play a villain on Batman. How would you have cast him on that series? Be seeing you, Jay, Jay Batsner. Uh, wow, awesome. <laughs> From Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Uh-huh. All right, what do you got, Glenn? Uh... If Mr. Freeze, uh, <laughs> I, don't I don't think so. If Rachel Ghoul wasn't clearly, uh, uh, oh, uh, that's a villain with a very particular set of skills. A very particular set of skills, a very particular ethnicity. Uh, it's right there in the name. Uh-huh. Uh, if we were to blind cast, but I don't think we should. Uh, um, I, you know, he would Ray make Ghoul. He could have saved one more, just one more, just one but... more. I, I think. Um, <laughs> He doesn't have the uh, giddy charm of a Riddler. Um, and I would never replace Roddy McDowell's bookworm. Uh, I don't want to see him as Egghead. Um, he'd be a terrible fucking Joker, a terrible Penguin. He wouldn't have the brio of um, of of King Tut. The Calculator. That's, how it, that's who it would be. The Calculator. Wow. Mm-hmm. Six out of six, Glenn. I'm very mm-hmm. impressed. Mm-hmm. I knew you would do it. I was uh, I was throwing you a tough one, but I, I knew you could handle it. That's why I did it. I knew you'd come through. Should I read the, the latest uh, submission for, for Push It, File It, Stamp It, or, or would you like me to hold that in reserve just, just in case you get yourself in trouble? 
on a future episode, like the one we're going to record in five minutes. In case you need to phone a friend, do you, do you want me to hold this, or, or, or are you confident in your in your picks? Uh, Chris, I delayed the recording of this episode by fifteen minutes just so I could come up with Lamo's fucking juiced. So I think I will not need a friend. So yeah, you just you just read that out right now. Oh, you you put a whole fifteen minutes into. <laughs> okay, never guilt trip you again about our. Uh... <laughs> Who's carrying that weight? I'd as, forgotten. Uh, I'd forgotten to do on, it. Uh, on Abbey Road. All right. Mm-hmm. David J. Lore from The Incomparable and other podcasts, playwright, theater mm-hmm. commentator. I know this guy. Yes. Push, push file, Mary kill. Who are we kidding? It's number six. There's no marrying. Okay, brace yourselves. I'm going in. We push it like a kid on the wrong side of the door at the Midvale School for the Gifted. Oh, that's, that's nice. Pretty that's that's pretty a pretty good, good one. It's a pretty good one. Ah, thank you, Gary Larson, for a comic panel. I quote nearly every time I push the pull door. That's that's mm-hmm. David. That's not me editorializing. That is part of his email. Yep. File it like the composer of the Three Penny Opera. Oh fuck! <laughs> Are you mad? You can't use Kurt File now. Uh, it's mad yeah. that I'm using Kurt File in the episode we're about to tape. Yes. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh, I well, shouldn't have. Oh, you know, I shouldn't have magic, let you do it. Magic of editing. We I can, know. Again. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Index it like a reader's guide to periodical literature. Sure, sure. Again, David, I know David's age. <laughs> okay, this is one that I, I feel like I, I should get, and it, it kind of reminds me of when I, I just heard, um, because we, we, we are going to tape a very special episode with podcasting legend Matt Gorley very soon. I, I have upped my intake of uh, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, mm-hmm. one of the, the many, uh, but, but probably the, you know, the largest uh, audience-wise uh, Gorley-affiliated podcast. And among uh, the best of the celebrity comes trampling into the podcasting space at the last <laughs> minute. Uh. <laughs> Good. You and, you and Matt should, should talk about that at length. <laughs> Jake Tapper was just on, and he used Cromulent. Mm. And and Conan didn't didn't know the reference. No, that was amazing to me. I mean, honestly, that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, when something's your job, you don't maybe maybe you don't obsess over it in quite the same way that you do when you're just purely a fan. So when you, when when Jake Tapper had to explain to Conan O'Brien a vintage Simpsons reference, yep, that was great. But it also, I don't I don't think that's necessarily the the uh, scalding embarrassment for for Conan that, yep. that it might have been to some. Anyway, David writes, stamp it like Bart Simpson's pet elephant, Stampy. Stampy. Oh, okay. I didn't. I forgot that one. Is that is that from the golden era? Is that from the O'Brien era? Of, <laughs> Where's my uh, of the elephant? Simpsons? Where's <laughs> my elephant? Yes, yes. Those fat cats in Washington. It's a great episode. I'm alive. I'm alive, and I owe it all to this feisty feline. Dad, feline means cat. Elephant, honey. It's an elephant, and I'm sure he'll make a grand piano. Dad. Oh. Ah. Uh. Okay, this is um, this is one that I have to reluctantly give. Uh, I, I know I've, I've fallen behind on my, my grading, like like so many underpaid uh, associate profs uh, <coughs> who will never ever get tenure. But I'm going to go ahead and before I read this one, say that uh, despite my objection to the food stuff referenced, I'm going to give it a six out of six. Brie fit like someone having a tantrum about cheese. Oh, right. And how fitting that you would read that, Chris, because you often have tantrums about the, the mere existence of cheese. That's, I, I mean, cheese. It's, it's, it's fine for others. 
Yeah, and I and I eat yogurt every damn day. Go figure. I don't know, Glenn. I'm a, yeah, I'm a mystery. Does, there's, there's no internal consistency there. Mystery wrapped in a riddle. Wrapped uh-huh. in, a... <laughs> wrapped in uh, bacon wrapped cheddar. It's actually pretty good. Debrief it like 007 with Mary Goodnight after they dispatch Scaramanga, at least until Knickknack tries to get into the act. Oh, man, after your own heart, Chris. It, indeed, that. indeed. What's the movie, Glenn? What's the movie? Uh, Scaramanga. We've, we've watched it together at your home. Golden Gun? No? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. It. good yes. Yeah. It turns out that Christopher Lee, Scaramanga, is actually a relative of Ian Fleming. Did you know? That's I a fact. I did not. Did not know that. That is a fact. I don't. I don't recall exactly how they're related, but they're related somehow uh, beyond Christopher Lee having been in a movie based on a character that he I mean, created. It's a small island. <laughs> <laughs> Scaramanga, also uh, who also lives on in uh, in the trip movies, because he of course is the come come Mister Bond. You enjoy killing just as much as I do. The trip movies. Yeah, Coogan and Bryden, the trip, the trip to you know, oh, the trip, the right, trip to course, Italy, the trip to Spain, the trip to yeah, 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 the trip tick. Although uh, I think there are there are four. There are four. Them, there right? are four. So, so yeah, it, that was that was a great joke two years ago. The the trippy <laughs> ad. Uh, number it like a top ten list from the home office in Tahlequah, oh. Oklahoma. Speaking there we of, go. all right, so. now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my little blue note card towards the mm-hmm. towards the camera. Uh, passes yeah. out like someone who's run the paracourse too many times. Wakes up wanting to beat my time. Now for the part you don't read on the air because of all the praise. Showers praise, David J. Laura. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. So you said you met David. I've met David before too. I met him at the Humana Festival in uh, Louisville, and probably twenty third would had to have been twenty thirteen because that's the only time I actually went. Huh. And I met him at some podcasting conference in I want to say Pasadena, possibly. Where's 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 Disneyland? Anaheim. It was in Anaheim. Because you 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 didn't know where you were because you were just being driven around to all your places and Certainly absolved of true. any responsibility for navigation or. Uh, you just know. remember that uh, when we were staying in the cheap hotel, the 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 Disneyland was right over the horizon. You could almost smell the elephant ears, the churros. Yeah. What's the 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 um. Starly Kine, yes, that's who I was trying to think of, and and her her story about how her mom would take her and her sibling to stay in the Disneyland hotel, but would not let them leave the hotel premises <laughs> and actually go to the <laughs> the world famous theme park. <laughs> that's uh, right next door, just a short monorail ride away. The monorail that goes through the hotel yep, <laughs> and takes yep, you yep, yep. only goes one place. <laughs> It took several summers for them to convince their uh, worrywart mom to let them venture into the the brutal killing grounds <laughs> that is the Magic Kingdom. This is a sincere question. It's not a joke. I, is there a monorail at Disneyland? I know there's one at Disney World. Oh, um, I couldn't swear to it. I don't know. There is the Contemporary Resort uh, in Disney World where the monorail actually goes through. Isn't it, it, goes, is it not at both? I don't know. It's not. I, I mean, I've certainly know. been. To, look, I mean, I think Ronald Reagan was president last time I was at Disney World. Now, now, I I did live in Southern California for some years, so I I have I have been to Disneyland this century. But but I don't remember if there's a monorail. We probably shouldn't keep this in so that people can just tell us a thing <laughs> that we can just easily Google right now. It's literally, just monorail Disneyland, and we'd, uh-huh. we'd have the answer to this question. Yes, I'm gonna search monorail Shelbyville. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> which <laughs> which Gurley should ask uh, Conan about. Yeah. Be like, what? Monorail? What? <laughs> what are you saying? I, and if there's one thing I'm sure Conan would remember, I, I have to feel like, like Conan wrote the lyrics to the Monorail song. He definitely did. I haven't checked this, but uh, all right. Thank you all for your for your correspondence. Shelbyville idea. <laughs> Just tell us their dumb idea and we'll pay for it. But uh... <laughs> you you promised our listeners, Glenn, that if Apple Podcast reviews were a safe space where they could put their most outre <laughs> prisoner theories. Yep. Why'd you laugh? Did I say that wrong? No, I just I just don't expect outre to come out of your mouth. That's outre. Good. Yeah, outre. You, ha- you have to pronounce the accent that I always have to look up how to type. Mm-hmm. Because apparently I, I use that word a lot. But yes, you promised them that if they would uh, cast aside their fear of judgment, of uh, ostracism, mm-hmm. of a third thing, mm-hmm. and just <laughs> and also you you said they had to buy their way onto the show with a five star review. Absolutely, pay the ferryman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm going to read this one, even though I'm I'm breaking your promise. I don't actually see a theory here, but um, I just like this comment, so I want to read it. I loved The Prisoner back in the day, and your arch-affectionate, attentive discussion is in fact the cat's meow. Okay, see see animal metaphors and sort of antiquated phrases like that? I'm going to issue an exemption to those, to your, your no-praise dictum. All Cat's right, meow. If anybody wants to call us the bee's knees. Well, I'll accept or, the bee's knees. Yeah, I'll accept right. uh, Y'all. The... Uh, <laughs> The chickens come home to roost. I'll accept that for some reason. The Doesn't mean anything. Roar. The okay. <laughs> uh, y'all have hit the nerd sweet spot. My then adolescent self, reeling from culture shock from re-entering the U.S. after a five and a half year stay in Europe, was appalled Brag. at the self-satisfied conformity of the U.S. <laughs> and the casually surrealist, anti-heroic, last syllable thwacking. <laughs> Angrily handsome PM was just the thing to make this weird girl feel seen. Thanks for the work. Looking forward to the rest. Be seeing you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what have we learned? Uh, that that works for, for some ladies, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Maybe some women, yep. they, they just want uh, Patty to sit a respectful distance, uh, a, a sort of future pandemic anticipating distance across the room from them while holding up a, a card and saying, it's... no! <laughs> <laughs> Rug. It's sad, though, that, you know, he could express to them, as he did in uh, Hammer and Anvil, disgust. And they would still like it because he hit the, he hit that, that, the last, the S and the T really hard, so. This is another thing I am discovering as we take this journey together, Glenn. I, mm-hmm. I did not, like, I just somehow missed this the first time i saw this show what mcguin's speech patterns so it's... so famously celebrated in our in our theme song <laughs> yeah. it just didn't I, it, it, I don't know it wasn't one of the things that that just landed with me it's what <laughs> the show's about chris i don't know what you're saying since the war before the war which for long time. I imagine that somebody who had some kind of classical training would learn that okay, so if you're if you're intoning Shakespeare's lines, lots of lots of actors have done it. You uh, need to put your own yeah. spin on it. The way to do that without changing the line is to change the inflection and to put 
a lot of a lot of English, a lot of moxie yeah. on on your pronunciations. I suspect that that has something to do with it. It was kind of true. We saw a clip of him doing what the hell is the uh, um, uh, Doll's House guy? What's his name? Uh, Ibsen. Ibsen. We saw him yeah. doing Ibsen's brand. brand, brand, brand. And he was he was doing some of that too. Yep. That 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 mm-hmm. seems to be kind of his thing. I imagine he did right. it in Moby Dick. When we get to our scarecrow of Romney Marsh episode, because the the listeners demanded it. Did they? They did, Glenn. People were talking did about they? like locating third-hand VHS copies of the the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. I'm not even sure okay. if that's the right title, but people uh, or person, person or you, not Glenn. I had never heard of this. This is okay. this is why this All has right. been such a rewarding thing. This is our listeners who have educated me about the existence of this uh, thing where Pat McGowan plays a scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> If I only had a brain. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, he, he read for the part in The Wiz. He's uh, uh... <laughs> on down the road. Yeah. One for thee, one for me. <laughs> Warm the pot always. Yep, yep, All yep. All right. Your request for outlandish theories. Here we go. This is this is from Finn4444. Four, 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 four. <laughs> So this is the, okay. is this the Finn who used to be a stormtrooper? <laughs> okay. Here's one I came across and rather like, even though it's absurd. Number six is some kind of synthetic life form that they are testing. <laughs> he keeps failing the test. This would explain his inhuman interactions with women, general dickishness, as well as over-the-top affect. You need a scapegoat. Citizens, unite to denounce this menace in our presence. It's kind of the Westworld Pinocchio theory. It does beg the question of whether everybody in the village is a robot. The hosts also mention all the weird technology in the show. Oh, I guess that's us. Uh, Mention all the weird technology in the show, but they never express incredulity at the idea of alcohol-free whiskey and vodka that tastes as good as the real thing. If they did, apologies, but I didn't didn't catch it. That's the most ridiculous bit of technology in the series. Stretches the willing suspension of disbelief way too far, more so than the Dream Viewer, Rover, or anything else. Fair non-alcoholic gin, whiskey, vodka. Look the same, taste the same. But you can't get me to me. No alcohol here, sir. You better vote for me. You and only you. Go away. Gin, whiskey, vodka. Looks the same and tastes the same. Get out! Smothering white ball of death. Sure. Got it. I'm in. Uh, good tasting, a non-alcoholic whiskey. This episode of A Degree Absolute is brought to you by Odul's, the, uh, <laughs> the not beer. <laughs> Looks the For, same, tastes yeah. the same. Um, yeah. I mean, I take his point. Um, Give me a drink. Are we a drink? <laughs> I like I, him as a, a, a synthetic life form. Uh, is a way to explain how weird he's uh, acting. And <laughs> I right. think that's a, you are uh, creating a hypothesis um, to fit the situation as opposed to uh, testing the situation. You know what I mean? You, you've mm-hmm. constructed a hypothesis that uh Can I even like refer to others, other synthetics without getting uh, another uh, undeserved rebuke from you? Look, my, look the, the listeners cannot see this, but my face is impassive. You can say whatever you want. Okay. Right. I mean, there's something of uh, Ian Holmes. Ash has a little bit of that. That same. Uh, I was going to say that same. Remove and roll the R, but I can't do it. I can't you can't roll it. an R. You can, can roll. No, an R. no. I've said that. I can't. Uh, 
Remove? Sounds like you're gargling. Sounds like somebody has, has, we've, has we've shot some Listerine before, in here. That's it's it's canon. It's on the record. I, I can't roll that, my or... goddamn R's. Um, and of course, you know, you know, Soshi. That's what my wife called me. Cold fish. <laughs> I mean, that could be a thing. That could be also. But yeah. I just, I just don't yeah, think yeah, it's. Yeah, yeah. I Nothing like, like the, the theory. The, the the voiceover that uh, you record against your will. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Love it. laughs> Again, this is a safe zone. No theory is too wild and weird. I, I, I engage with this theory. I accept mm, this mm-hmm, theory. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate this theory. I don't buy this theory, but like I, okay. I, I completely, I completely, um, I hear it. You don't believe it? It's improbable, but not impossible. Nothing is impossible in this place. All right. What's next? Is this at living last? In harmony? Living in harmony. Living in harmony. Okay. All right. Living in harmony with Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, co-creator, <laughs> and all of the other Thrilling Adventure Hour characters, co-creator, Ben Blacker. Yep, host of the Writer's Room and many other many other things. Yes, uh, I am looking forward to talking to Ben about it because I don't remember it that well. It's our introduction to one Mr. Alex Kanner. He hits you in, in your, your Rachel Herbert place? Is that what I'm... He's a good-looking young man. I'll yeah. say that. He's a very symmetrical young man, and he makes big choices. Two things you, you appreciate. If he played the creepy Photoshop owner, <laughs> it'd be, it, it wouldn't be as creepy. I mean, like, because... That uh, camera store, which, by the way, one of these books notes is a, an actual camera store in London. That was not a set, unlike the, yeah. the incredibly impressive Village Clock Shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a there's a poster in the the front door advertising something called the Polaroid Swinger. Oh, hey, that sounds dirty. I think that's what people started calling you when they were done calling you Mr. Deltoid, Glenn. <laughs> the Polaroid Swinger. Because uh, I I develop instantly. I yes, because right. you have tattoos all over your body, reminding you of vital clues when you're. Quest for Vengeance, oh, sure, uh, sure, you're sure. afflicted with short-term memory loss. All you got to do to make me think more clearly is shake me very hard. <laughs> Try, Glenn. Try yes. to remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Living in Harmony. I'm excited. This is one, I, I, again, I'm increasingly convinced is last time I attempted a Prisoner rewatch, I did not make it all the way to the end. Because mm-hmm. like there, there are several. I, I certainly did not watch Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And um, I don't remember watching living in harmony in the early aughts yep controversial episode uh both in the states and in the uk mm-hmm. so. all right Chris. Very good well till then glenn we shall attempt to live in harmony be seeing you be seeing you Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. And I guess I'm going to have to have a word with my staff because it says here that Glenn would like to thank his hairdresser for contributing his most cogent insights and best 
jokes? Can that be right? Yes, uh, we barbers get on. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute.